I really, really enjoy how that song is structured because it really presses us into just simply a heart of praise. We sing it because we believe it and we desire to just simply sing it as a desire to express our thanks to God. But I really especially loved it in the context this morning because most often when I sing that song together with you all here on a Sunday morning, my mind fires to all kinds of memories and thoughts over the years of things that I am thankful to God for. And I think that that's perfectly fine. But in the context of today, it pressed us into, if I had nothing in my life to be thankful for, other than the knowledge of God coming into humanity, which is the Christmas story, would I sing that song with praise? And it's a real test and question of faith. And, and I love the context and the way it was presented and how we sang it. it. It made us think about that and made us ponder that in our hearts. Maybe you didn't. Maybe you will now. Hey, welcome. Welcome back, Canoe Creek. It's good to be here this morning where we gather together every Sunday to do what Kenny just said. Uh, praise God with songs, prayers, of adoration, open our hearts in adoration to his word, uh, to ask God to form us and shape us as we trust what he says to us. So excited that you're here. Let me share a couple of ways you can engage with the vision here at Canoe Creek as well. Uh, we have, if you look in your bulletin that you got on your way in, there's an insert. We have new classes starting in January, which is next year, and it's just a month away, right? It's amazing how fast that happens. And I'm excited about this because we have our second core class, which is looking at the divine. If you are starting to pick up on this, and you're going to catch up with this, over a two-year, 24-month period, which has already started, we are designing and preparing six core classes. These six classes are going to then have workbooks that will be designed that are beautiful and excellent to help guide uh, people. The, this class structure is designed that you just don't show up and somebody tell you something, but you're prepared before you show up. So you have skin in the game of becoming a disciple. And, and this is a part of our all-in vision. This is something Wendy has already begun to walk out. These six classes are core content that we believe every Christian should know, no matter whether you're mature and you just need to be refreshed and reminded of it, or you're just new in the faith, that we want people over the course of whatever it may take. It may take 24, 36, 48 months, but people will go through these classes and desire to go back to them or maybe go back to one specific one and, and grow in their knowledge of Christ. So we're excited about this, and we're excited this our all-in vision already walking itself out. In addition to that, we're excited to have a, an elective this January, which is Parenting Through the Phases. Our very own uh, Carrie Haskett, children's minister, will be teaching this class. It's something that she rotates in as often as she can. It is a great parenting class. So some great opportunities for you. You're going to want to register. I guarantee you, it's going to fill up. I can already tell you that. And if you don't like technology, just grab one of the Connect cards on the seat pockets in front of you. Put your name, your email, your phone number. You may not have an email if you don't like technology. Just give us what you got and say, I want to register for XY class. Put it in the giving boxes on your way out. Uh, we're excited to have that, those opportunities to grow for you. In addition to this, we have uh, our holiday and Christmas services coming up. So keep this on your mind. At Christmas Eve, there's 2, 4, and 5.30. Sunday, Christmas morning, there's one service at 10.30. All three services are identical. 
You may choose to come Christmas Eve and Sunday morning. Great. Uh, but we will have the same service uh, for all three of those. And, and we do need volunteers for Christmas Eve because we have care for infants and nursery. And if you volunteer for the, one of those areas on Christmas Eve, remember if you have elementary kids, they'll be in kids club. There's going to be a kids club just for volunteers' kids. And then there's always the two services. So if you're volunteering in one, you can attend the other with your family. And then Christmas Sunday morning, uh, it should, we're all going to be in here together. We're looking forward to just celebrating that morning together as we worship together, God, on Christmas Day with all of our families. And then, of course, the next Sunday is New Year's Day, and so we have one service on that day at 1030 as well. We want to bless our volunteers. There's a lot going on, and the least we have to have them all engaged and working, uh, the better off. So we eliminate some of those services so that we can just really focus in on the season and enjoy it as well. So in addition to that, just want to let you know, we have been circulating the all-in journals. They're in the seat pockets in front of you this morning. On the seats around you, you'll find an all-in update, which will tell you about some of the things that have already been done, and it'll tell you about some of the things that we are looking forward to doing that we're in the process of doing right now. And, you know, whether it's the generosity project that we did a couple weeks back, uh, if you want to engage and financially support the vision, uh, the, the financial commitment card is in there. You can help support the fact that we've provided 100 food uh, baskets for people in our community. We've provided the, all the, the Christmas child boxes that go around the world. If you're just now finding out about All In, you want to know more information about it, there it is. If it's something you've been looking at for a while and you're, you're studying, hey, this is what the vision is for Canoe Creek over the next five years, and you're ready now to financially commit and go All In, great, the information's there. And some of us are able to give a year in gift to help fund the vision that we have for what we're wanting to do over the next five years. It's great. All the information you need there to know what our vision is, to where we're going, and how we're getting there. We'd love for you to engage with that. So we are in this series called The Christmas Option. Um, it was funny, some of my buddies and I, we meet guys all around the nation that are preachers every Wednesday. There's anywhere from 20 to 30 of us. And one of them asked this past week, so what are you guys preaching in December? And I just laugh. I was like, is there an option, you know? Um, but this, this series is called the Christian Option or Christmas Option because if you remember last week, we looked at the fact that sometimes we take the Christmas store and we make it what we want it to be based on tradition. No, you can have all your traditions. It's great. Enjoy them, love them. Just don't make them God's word if they're not God's word. You know, or sometimes we just want the warm and fuzzies. We want to feel good about whatever it is that we want to feel good about. And so we kind of eliminate the hard stuff. And then what we do is we create for ourselves the Christmas option versus just simply letting God's word speak for itself. And let us know what God would want us to know and trust that. And besides that, remember, I said this last week. I think I'm going to say it every week. Some of the best things for us don't come out of the warm and fuzzy. They come out of the difficult. After all, eternal life in Christ, which is so essential, and our desire to be with God for eternity is made possible through the darkest and most difficult moment in the life of Jesus. His suffering and his death bring us eternal joy. And so when we skip over the things that aren't warm and fuzzy in the overall Christmas story, it can sometimes cause us to miss out on some of the greatest things and the greatest gifts. And so that's what we're looking at. And so I want to invite you to turn with me Matthew chapter 1. Last week, we went to John's letter, 1 John, which doesn't seem like a Christmas story, but it was, as we saw. This week, we're jumping right into the Christmas story. You can't miss it, Matthew chapter 1. But I'm going to spare you. I'm not going to read the entire genealogy of Jesus. 
probably going to be sparing myself, right? Trying to read all of those names. So I want to read an abbreviated version and highlight, I think, some of the most essential pieces of this genealogy to, to draw our attention to what I think is the main point and where we need to be focused this morning as we think about this. So it's going to sound a little bit choppy, uh, and it may be a little bit more difficult for you to follow along in your own Bibles, but it'll help you get to where we want to get to. So starting in Matthew, the gospel telling us about Jesus, chapter 1, beginning in verse 1, this is what we read. This is the genealogy of Jesus the Messiah. In that genealogy, we find Judah, the father of Perez and Zerah, whose mother was Tamar. We also find Salmon, the father of Boaz, whose mother was Rahab. Boaz, the father of Obed, whose mother was Ruth. And then David, the father of Solomon, whose mother had been Uriah's wife. Joseph, the husband of Mary, and Mary, the mother of Jesus, who is called the Messiah. Thus there were 14 generations in all, from Abraham to David, 14 from David to the exile to Babylon, and 14 from the exile to the Messiah. All this took place to fulfill what the Lord had said through the prophet. The virgin will conceive and give birth to a son, and they will call him Emmanuel, which means God with us. So there's some interesting things there. I highlighted some names to draw them out for you. That may mean something to you. It may not. You might, what does all that mean? I'm going to try and draw a little bit of that out. But let me just simply start with one of the last things that we heard there, and that is something maybe you're familiar with this title. Maybe you've sung it many times during Christmas. Maybe you know what it means, but it's the title Emmanuel, which is first recorded three times, I believe, in Isaiah the prophet, who's uh, repeated here by Matthew, who's quoted here by Matthew, um, and I think it's the only time we find it in the New Testament. But it is a title no doubt, of, of God, of Jesus who came into the world. And here's what the title leads us to understand. Three simple things. Jesus is God, Jesus was human, and Jesus is with us. Jesus was God, Jesus uh, is God, Jesus was human, and Jesus is with us. These are such important things and such amazing things when we think about it because Jesus, who is God, came and all the narratives tell us the story of the gospel uh, and they're not telling us, when we look at the gospel, when we look at the Christmas story, it doesn't tell you, this is what you should do. It doesn't come along, give us the narrative of, this is what you're supposed to do. Think about this, the story of God, the Christmas story, the narratives tell us, this is what God has done, right? For Mary and Joseph in the moment, in the midst of it, all those who were there, this is what God is in the process of doing. It's a very important point to make, which leads us to just two thoughts on this. Uh, the story does not begin with once upon a time, which would make it cute, right? It'd make it really fun and neat, but this is a story about reality, not fantasy. It is a recorded story of history of what has been done, and it's what's done by the power and the presence and the ability of God, essentially. 
Now, the one who invented everything around us that some of the most brilliant people in the world spend their entire lives trying to figure out, right, but can't figure it out or smugly think that they have, that one, the person who created everything, it says that he came to live and be a part of us. He stepped into time and space and became a part of the historical narrative story that all of us are a part of for right now, for a short period of time, right? And here's the point in this. I think we believe that um, we trust God. We believe in God. But do we actually follow through in that belief? Do we actually live out that Conviction, Because, see, I think we struggle to actually live out the conviction or display the trust in action. Or we're misguided or misunderstand what this really means, Jesus is God. Because at the end of the day, here's the reality. It, it should bring about radical change. Significant radical change transformation. Not just, okay, I go to church, or not just, you know, okay, I believe in something, but I'm talking about where our steps, our actions, our ideas, things are radically different as a result. Now, I say that I, I say that because if God can do what he has done and what he says he has done, then it should bring about some significant faith that's displayed in radical change. Whereas a once upon a time story, what does it do? It entertains us, maybe, if it's a good one. It, it inspires us for a moment. It maybe even makes us think about doing something different for a season, right? But this is the real historical story of God, and it should bring about radical change. Now, here's the second thing of importance as a result of Jesus is God. The fact that God has come to be with us means there's real power for us. There's real power given to us. It's not just a metaphor. It's not just an idea. And, and here's the reality that our eternal state can be changed as a result of the power of God. And I think we downplay that. I think we make it more simple than it is at the end of the day. Um, but here's the thing. The angels didn't show up and say, this is what you must do. They showed up and they said, I bring you glad tidings of great joy. They said, I'm bringing you news. I'm bringing you information. I'm bringing you a fact of what God's power is doing in you, around you, for you, as you place your faith. And here's the problem. When we misunderstand that, we fail to understand that the gospel is good news, not good advice. This is a significant issue, especially in our guru-led world where we believe, well, Jesus just came. He gave us some scriptures. We see power in the scriptures in this sense that if I can just do everything the way that I'm told to do it in here, I'll somehow harness the power of God and my life will be perfect and everything will be great. And then after we've tried that for a little while and failed consistently, what happens then? We have to come back to the reality that God has done something for us, and there's significant power in that. Now, his word leads us to see that. His word leads us to understand that. His word leads us in ways that we can start honoring 
our faith and trusting uh, the virtues that we've placed on God and, and living out and walking out those things. But the problem is when we just simply make it good advice rather than good news, then it comes back to us and what power I have and what I am able to do. But here's the reality. God did not become an infant, subject himself to human parents, and to die in the most inhumane fashion ever just to simply give good advice. He did it so that you could be saved. Through his power, through his ability, and through what only he can do for you. Now I get it, sometimes when we look at the Old Testament, we see a God that maybe we think is more angry or more mean but he's just simply a God who is exacting. He is a God who must bring justice to sin because we see the loving compassion of God in the Old Testament. But I get it, in the New Testament, we're introduced to an event, a story where the unapproachable becomes approachable, where uh, the unrelatable becomes someone we can ultimately have a relationship because through Jesus, we're able to meet with the all-powerful God who has done and is doing something amazing for us. Now, why is that possible? Because we need it done for us. God is infinitely holy, and our sin is not something that he can just simply shrug off. Eh, well, you know, you tried, sorry, but it's okay, I love you anyway. You see, this is a cultural movement to press us into the idea that makes us mentally think, well, it's God's fault anyway. I mean, he created me, I am this way, I did these things, so therefore he's responsible. And we just simply, and that's, th these are little mind tricks that Satan makes and creates within our culture that gets us to just simply shrug off things that God takes very seriously. And, and so we, we, we look at the Old Testament to some degree and we realize this is a God who does not shrug off sin, but then we come to the New Testament as well as we see this in the Old Testament. God is infinitely loving, so what did he do? He came and he brought a saving power to be available to us to do for us what we cannot do for ourselves. So, so let me speak on that for a minute because this, this brings us to the idea that Jesus was human. He lived among us just like we are, and he was human. And so there is a need for judgment of sin, but God's power to save does for us what ultimately needs to be done. And so this is all about Jesus being human. And so for us, our humanity means to be sinful. I mean, there, there is nothing that any one of us in this room can say we've done to fix that, to, to get over that, or nothing that we, we could say, well, I've lived the perfect life. Uh, you know, to be human is to be somebody who's going to be sinful. Now, that was radically different for Jesus. He was both human and he was God at the same time, but his family, wow, different story. Maybe you can relate to the family of Jesus. His family was perfectly human in every way. I mean, at the end of the day, I'm not going to give you all the little details, but like I said, the Christmas story does not begin with once upon a time. Rather, it begins with incest. It begins with prostitution. It begins with foreign people, adultery, and a cover-up story and murder. And it's all listed for us. I mean, listen, there is a good bit of Jerry Springer in the genealogy of Jesus. That's just the reality. There would be a great story there. Genealogies are resumes. And I don't know about you, but I guarantee you when you go into a job 
interview. You do not put on your resume what was put on the resume of Jesus. You don't go, oh, well, I'm good at this, but listen to all this stuff that's happened. Listen to what I did, and this is why I got fired from this job. You don't put that stuff there. And yet, we see the real story, not a once upon time story. We see the real reality of the family line of ultimately Jesus in so many things here. I mean, um, at the end of the day, I mean, none of us put the reality of Cousin Eddie on our resume. And yet we find it here in the resume of Jesus. The story of God, the genealogy of Jesus, it includes women. You did not do that in a man-dominated society. But there's women in this genealogy. These are the mothers of Jesus over time, which is interesting. And let me tell you what, uh, they were the saltiest of women you could ever imagine. Tamar, she committed incest. Now, you can read the story for yourself, but it's pretty wild, right? And then you go, Rahab, she's a prostitute. Yeah, I know she helped the spies, but I mean, she was, she made her living with sleeping with men. I mean, crazy. Um, Ruth, she's not even a Jewish person. She's a foreigner, you know? And, And then you get to one that's not even named, Bathsheba is a mother of Jesus, and she doesn't even get named, who had been Uriah's wife. So at the end, to be honest with you, the name on this list that doesn't even stand out as the worst to me is a woman's name. It's David's name. And I get it. He was a man after God's own heart, but he was also a man who was sinfully flawed, significantly flawed. To the point, if you don't know the details of that, keep in mind, when in David's younger years, he was on the run because Saul the king wanted to kill him because he was jealous of him. And there were some men who surrounded David and they were considered his mighty men. Here's what that meant. Not metaphorically, not just in idea, not just in thought, but literally these men put their lives on the line. That they fought for David in which they could have died and they were willingly uh, putting themselves in a position to die if that became the case. One of those men was Uriah. Years later, when David became king, how did he pay back Uriah? He had an adulterous affair with his wife when she became pregnant and he couldn't cover it up. He created a context in which Uriah was in battle and the soldiers withdrew so that Uriah would be killed. He created a conspiracy for murder. David is convictable big time in the court of law. And that's put in the genealogy of Jesus. These are his mothers, essentially. Here, here's the point in all of this. Even the best among us needs God's grace, and the worst among us cannot be kept from God's grace. I mean, listen, if you're good at being good, great for you. I'll bake you a hero cookie one day, okay? Uh, be careful not to let that become self-righteousness, And if you're good at being bad and it pains your heart and you are struggling and you desperately desire to change, know that God wants that for you. None of us are greater than a point in which we don't need his grace and none of us are so bad that we cannot receive it. The humanity of Jesus' story, his true story, his family story, uh, tells us that now in the power of Christ, prostitutes and kings sit together, men and women, the moral and immoral, every race of people sit down and everyone's the same. Everyone's equal. That's the power of the resume 
of Jesus. And while it's not painted with a once upon a time fantasy story, here's the reality. God knows who you are. God knows what you've done. He knows your humanity and all the sin. And yet he still says, I'm not ashamed of you. Hebrews 2.11, both the one who makes people holy and those who are made holy are of the same family. So Jesus is not ashamed to call them brothers and sisters. So let me press this just a little bit more before we move on. Because I think some people think, yeah, but you don't know me. Well, to be honest with you, the only people who know me are my covenant group. My wife. And my kids know a little bit. And that's just the truth. One of the names that we read first was the name of Judah, who was the son of Jacob. He became the father of Judah by deceiving his father, stealing a birthright, creating a bitter rivalry within his family through lies and deceit. And his deception led to the fracture of the family, the splitting up of him and his brother. And his brother turned against him. And essentially, he became a fugitive. But this also led to the path where he married Leah, who essentially became a mother of Jesus in this genealogy. And here's what it leads us to know. God can use our stupid. He can use our sordid, sinful humanity when we stop running and we start trusting the promises that he makes to us. So here, up to this point, you might be thinking, well, great, my life might be a Jerry Springer show, but God loves me, and the Christmas story tells me he has done something powerful for me. And that is the truth. But if you truly believe Jesus is God and that he came to be human, to save you, then the right response is faith. And faith requires our desire to engage in activity and demonstrate our desire to be with Jesus. That's one of the most important points here. If I believe without a doubt in faith, Jesus is God. If I believe without a doubt, Jesus became human in order to settle a problem that I've created because that's how much he loves me. Here's the radical response in my transformation. I want to be with him. I want to know him. I want to be known by him. And I want to bring him into every situation knowing he is with me in everything that I say and everything that I do or desiring for him to be with me in everything I say and do because I want him to transform my thoughts and my actions and my attitudes in that moment in how I live. When we ask what's the application, it gets a little tough, okay? Because here's the reality. The life of faith that desires Jesus requires bravery. If you want Jesus to be with you, which is what the right response of faith is, it requires courage. It requires courage in so many different avenues, moments, situations throughout my daily life, with my family, in decisions that I make and actions that I ultimately take. And here's the first step of courage that all of us have to take. We have to admit, I'm a failure. I'm a sinful person. And it might even be that I'm a sinful person who for years have been following the Christian faith trying to absolve myself of my sins. And I'm coming to a place where I realize that only God has the power to do that. And you might be 
in a position where you're being saved from your own religion, which is kind of an interesting thought, and it's a reality in God's word. But the mission of Jesus is simply stated in Matthew 121. She will give birth to a son, and you are to give him the name Jesus because he will save his people from what? Their sin. He'll save you from your sin. So God among us is a terrifying reality when we think about it. And we come face to face, what? With our sin. The holiness of God, the life of Jesus, Jesus who is God, who was human, brings us face to face with the reality that he was perfect in every way. And yet I look at my life and I see that I'm not, I'm not that way. And, and God being in the presence of me when I am sinful is a terrifying reality. But God who loves, who lives with us is to save us from that fear because he has solved for us what only he can do. But there's only one way that you can receive that in your life. And it's for some of us to come to the very bottom of the barrel, maybe even under the barrel, before we finally realize what I desperately need in my life is to accept and admit that Jesus is the only way to the Father. He is the only one who puts me in relationship with the Father. Um, it's love that brings us to admit that we're sinful because it's love that is what God uses, what Jesus used to manage the difficulty of, of being in this world and going through what he ultimately had to go through as well. Listen, you have to have courage to accept rejection as well. This isn't something I think we deal with as much in our culture. Um, we can be made fun of, we can be called intellectually stupid, you, you name it, all the way down the line. But it, it's not as much when, uh, let me just put it this way, when people talk about being persecuted as a Christian within our culture, it makes me cringe a little bit because I know and talk to people, I just had a Zoom conference with Judah, Tangshing, and Myanmar this past week, and I know from stories of what real persecution looks like. And it's not something we typically see within our culture and the freedoms that we ultimately have. But just like Joseph and Mary had to choose rejection to be with Jesus, you're going to have to make that same choice, which takes courage. I mean, G Joseph has an angel come to him, and the angel says to him, no, you can trust this woman. She's not sleeping around. This baby who is in her has been given to her by God. It is the son of God, and, and I want you to be the, the, the earthly father of this child. Uh, he couldn't go tell his buddies that story. Because to be honest with you, they would think he was crazier if he told them that story than if he just accepted the faith that they're going to believe you were sleeping with her, which is something you did not do in their culture, or you're even a greater fool. She was sleeping around. Now she's pregnant with somebody else's child, but you're going to stick with her. They were absolutely rejected by the community and culture around them as a result of their choice. Here's the simple reality of the Christmas story. To choose to be with Jesus means you will be rejected by others at times. Do you have the courage to make that choice? It's not easy. And sometimes we say, yeah, I've got faith, and we've got that courage mentally, and as soon as we come to that moment, we get on the other side of it and we realize, wow, I really failed at that one. Just remember in that moment, you're in good company. Peter failed a couple times too. God is gracious and slow and willing to lead us. Listen, I, this thought just kind of hit me this week too because Never seen the World Cup played out during the holidays. It's been interesting. Everybody's all about what they call football. Okay, whatever, you know. Um, but Iran and, and USA played this week. 
And, you know, the big story people think is that USA won. Well, they only won to lose. We all knew that was going to happen, all right? The real big story, in my opinion, was when the Iranian soccer players would not sing their national anthem, even though um, their country had said, we're going to potentially persecute you and your family if you do not do this. Now, this had nothing to do with Christianity. It had nothing to do with Christ, but it definitely was an amazing illustration of bravery. Will you, have you, come up against a moment in which you had to choose that I want Jesus to be with me regardless of what it may cost me or how hard it may be. That's real true bravery and courage. Here's the last application of courage that if we believe Jesus is God, if we believe Jesus was human, so therefore we want him to be with us, it's going to take courage Here's the last bit of courage that we have to have, the courage to give up self-determination. That does not go well in our culture and our society. We live in a world where you're an absolute idiot, fool, stupid, if you do not demand your rights and take hold of it because of the culture in which we live. And yet, we're saying that we're gonna follow somebody who says, hey, I need you to lay down your rights and your life in order at times for Jesus to be with you. That's just a very difficult thing. How many people say, listen, I'll follow Jesus if, or I'm willing to trust Jesus when, and then they lay out their conditions. Have you ever known people like that? Don't raise your hand. They may be sitting next to you. I don't know, but you know, we we probably know people. I know people like that. And at the end of the day, the reality of it is, is uh, they're not people with courage. Or they're not people with faith. Uh, they're, they're, they're people who are struggling with that or through that. Uh, and they're people who don't have the courage to have Jesus right in the midst of their life, in the middle of what's going on, directing their path and their ultimate steps. Because it takes courage to deny yourself. And all of us in this room, at some point, whether it's small or large, many or few, we've denied ourselves something in order to follow Jesus. Or maybe you're coming up against that right now and you're trying to figure that out and make that decision. Jesus tells us very clearly in the scriptures, you're gonna have to have the courage to follow me because you gotta deny yourself and take up your cross and live for me every day. And that's not always an easy thing to do. But here's the interesting thing. I think it's quite amazing and we miss it. It's an amazing opportunity for adventure because after all, here's the reality. How well do you really know yourself? I'll be honest with you, after the years that God has given me, I look back and at times I'm like, I really did not know myself when I was in my 20s. I didn't really know myself when I was in my 30s. I didn't really know myself in my 40s. And I keep coming to these five-year cycles where I'm like, that's who I was. That's, you know, I learn so much more about myself as time goes on. But do I trust and have faith that God knows me? How well do you really know what will unlock the greatest potential of your life? What you were created for and to do? How well do you know what that really is if you struggle to really know yourself as much as I think we all do? And so you see, uh, choosing to give up self-determination is a great act of faith because you're declaring, you believe Jesus is God. You believe he came to be human. You believe he did everything he did to be with you. Therefore, he knows me best. 
He knows what I was made for. He knows what will fulfill and bring joy into my life and bring me to the greatest point of the purpose for which I was born. When we actually start letting go of self-determination so that Jesus guides our steps, we are actually living out faith the where we're saying, I believe he has got the greatest adventure in mind for me and he has got the greatest idea of what I should be doing with my life. And he puts us right in that moment. And it's a true act of real faith. Think about it this way. Uh, one author kind of coined some, some thoughts of C.S. Lewis, and he said, courage is not simply one of the virtues, but the form of every virtue at the testing point. All of us are good at saying, I do this if, I do that when. Or we can make those decisions for other people. But when it's our life at the testing point and courage is on the line, that's when virtue is really demonstrated in what we do and how we act and how we respond to the moment. The author goes on to say, the soul is refined when convictions are proved through testing. When what we believe survives the threat of persecution and trial, the courage involved is transformational. This is when we really transform and change. That's how character is formed. Put simply, a virtue is a belief that has proved itself. Otherwise, it's just a concept. It's just an idea. It's just a warm and fuzzy thought. The Cheyenne Indians of the 1800s had six different packs of dog soldiers. These weren't just everyday kind of guys. They were like the mighty men of David. Uh, one historian has called them the Spartans of their time and their place and their race, essentially. They wore a sash around their waist. It had a rope around it, in which was called the dog rope. At the end of it, it had a stake, wooden stake. And when pressed into battle, when pressed into defending their community or their Cheyenne brothers and sisters, a dog soldier would run right up into the fight, fly off of their horse, and they would throw their stake into the ground. Now, it had a practical purpose to it. It was so that their horse could be tethered and not run off. But it had a metaphorical purpose to it. Once their stake was in the ground, they did not leave that spot until their family, their friends, their fellow people were rescued and saved from whatever threat was coming at them. And they would keep that promise to the point of death. Either everybody was saved and they were able to pull their stake out of the ground or they would die ultimately trying. And so we say that we believe in Jesus who is God, Jesus who was human, and Jesus who is with those who put their faith in him. And he has this kind of courage that we see demonstrated that he put his stake in the ground at the time of Christmas, an historical moment in which he ultimately said, I'm gonna stay right here until my people are saved. Now, you can't just follow someone like that by saying, I believe. It's where it begins. But where it leads us is to become the same kind of person who puts their stake in the ground and says, I'll do whatever it takes to deny myself, uh, to, to be with Jesus, whatever courage it takes, because 
He is with me, and I want to be with him. That's what it looks like to be somebody who knows the Christmas story and live it out in our lives. Let's pray. Father, we're grateful for this time, this opportunity to read and study your word. We're thankful that you did not redact the story of your son, Jesus, that you gave us everything, even the things that we typically don't want to see in a story because it's not warm and fuzzy. So help us just accept it, to receive it, to be excited about it, and to learn from it, and to grow from it, and to realize that what you do in your story is you give the opportunity for those of great royalty as well as those of the slums in terms of grace to dine together and to live among each other as equals. We are so grateful, Father, that all of us need your grace so that it forms and shapes our hearts to trust in your promises. And anybody who desires to see you and trust you and understand the gospel story will never be denied your grace. You're a great father who loves us. Help us to live in such a way that we demonstrate our desire for that love to be with us in everything that we do and everywhere that we go. Father, as we take this opportunity this morning to continue in praising you, we ask that you would continue in shaping and forming our hearts. Um, that even when we struggle in seasons of life through various things that are hard, our faith continues to grow to know, Lord, what you've done. And as a result, it changes who we are. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.